everybody. I'm Kai Rizdal. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. And I'm Amy Scott in for Kimberly Adams today. And it's What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, which means we get to answer your questions. If you have a question you'd like us to answer in the future, you can leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART, or you can email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. All right, the first question is in the form of an email. Dale from Creedmoor, North Carolina, wants to know, does Fox News pay all of the settlement or do they have insurance? Mm-hmm. Uh, you taking this one? I think you're taking this no, one. No, I think you are. All right, I will take this one. That's fine. Fine, I will take this one. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you so want me to. The, the, the answer is yes and no. So the settlement, of course, was $787.5 million American dollars uh, in the Dominion Voting Systems case. The answer is that they are not going to pay the full sticker price. We don't know exactly how they're going to pay, but here are some options, right? First of all, they could. They've got the cash. It would be about 20%, give or take, of the $4 billion they have on hand. But number one, as happens in most cases of this nature, uh, where there is um, uh, a judicial uh, ruling against them, Fox can deduct it. Sorry, it's not a judicial ruling. In most cases like this, where there is a settlement, Fox can um, deduct it from their taxes, right? It's a business-related expense. So part mm-hmm. of that comes off their taxes, number one. If they are insured, which of course they are because Fox is a big, giant company, uh, an insurance company will pay some part of that. Uh, partner at a media liability insurance firm said anywhere from $100 million to $500 million uh, of that could conceivably be covered, depending on what their um, challenges are. But here's this thing about Fox. This was one of many, many cases, both from individuals and against individuals and shareholders. And there's another one from uh, another voting machine company that's a $2.7 billion case. Um, so this is not done yet uh, by a long shot for Fox. It's going to cost Rupert Murdoch some money, but it's not going to be the whole seven eighty seven out of his pocket. Hmm. That's the deal. Yeah. You know, I saw today a story what? that basically Fox Corporation lost the equivalent of this settlement in, in its share price after oh, the Tucker value. Carlson announcement. Right. right. Just to yeah. put that in perspective. Yeah. 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 There's Tucker. There's there it is. Uh, okay. Next question. Another email. Here's what Bill in New Lebanon, New York wants to know. When college loan payments are eventually restarted, will that serve as a disinflationary pressure upon the economy? That's a good question. Yeah, it is a good question. So a little reminder, federal student loan payments have been paused for more than three years now. It started at the beginning of the pandemic in the Trump administration. The Biden administration has kept extending that pause. Uh, But those payments are set to resume later this year. And this is where it gets a little confusing. Either they will start 60 Mm -hmm. days after June 30th, which is late August by my count, or 60 days after uh, lawsuits blocking Biden's student loan forgiveness plan are resolved in court, um, depending which happens first. As you know, there's a larger plan to extend up to $20,000 in debt for folks who earn, I believe it's less than $125,000 a year. And that has been held up in court. In terms of the inflation question, when the Biden administration extended the pause last year, critics said that move would make inflation worse by basically putting more money in people's pockets, which adds stimulus to the economy, adds demand, which is, you know, part of what's been pushing up prices. Um, And some economists uh, were concerned about that, others less so. Um, 
you know, I think there's a, an ongoing debate about how much helping people afford their debts mm -hmm. <laughs> contributes to inflation. Uh, but the idea uh, is that if borrowers don't have to make monthly student loan payments, they have more in their wallets to spend. So when those payments resume, in theory, they will well, they will have uh, less money in their wallets. Mm -hmm. um, but last year, economists at Goldman Sachs estimated the impact of the moratorium would be pretty small on inflation. So on the flip side, uh, resuming payments will probably have a pretty small effect, too. Yeah. Yeah. Stephanie Hughes did a good piece for us the other day on um, what happens to companies, right? What it's going to do for retail sales, because as people might remember, retail sales were down last month by like nine tenths of one percent. Not great in a consumer driven economy. And so these consumers who now are going to have to re up on their student loans will, as Amy said, have less money to spend. That will be, uh, you know, marginally good for inflation, but it's going to be marginally bad for companies. So, yeah, you know, that's put interesting. that in your recession pipe and smoke it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. That's a technical economic term. Uh, next question. Here we go. I'm wondering if there's an economic story in what my wife and I have referred to as pandemic gray, which is this new battleship gray that almost all of the car companies have universally been painting some of their cars. That sort of battleship, sometimes it's greener, sometimes it's bluer, but I'm curious if you guys know more. Thanks for making me smart. Steve from Philadelphia. Wow. Steve. All right, I guess I'll get this one started and maybe we can talk right. about it. Um, right. I think this is so fascinating because for a long time, if you look around, there are no cars of, of color other than like mm. beige, white, gray, mm. silver. Super boring, right? But at least they were sparkly. Um, I think what you're referring to, Steve, is, yeah. is uh, these matte grays and blues and greens that don't have the like metallic sparkle in them. And the LA Times wrote a really interesting article about this recent trend uh, with muted earth tones. Apparently, it started with Audi uh, back in 2013 and was popular and led other pricey companies to do the same. Sometimes people pay a premium for these matte colors, which I think is interesting. But it's also trickled down into more affordable cars. And so you're seeing what people call sort of natural tones or even combat, you know, tactical looking uh, colors, which is, I think, pretty interesting. I'm curious, though, about the safety issue. I, I mean, one mm. of them referred to these colors as stealth. <laughs> and I have yeah. this memory of going to a car lot with my dad when he was shopping for a new car. And he said, close your eyes and then open them and tell me which cars you see. And of course, oh, I saw the wow. yellow car, the red car. Yeah. They really yeah. stand out, you know? And so we, you almost never see those huh. colors anymore. No, and, and you can go long stretches with only seeing like like the whites and the grays. And, and I, my theory is that it just goes in trends and streaks and car companies follow each other. Edmonds, the, the car people, they say car, cars painted various shades of white, gray, black, and silver accounted for 75% of new car sales in the United States last year. I totally buy that. Absolutely 100%. There you go. That. Yeah, for sure. All right. Time for our last question of the day, and this one is for Kai. Hi, I'm Bailey from Austin, Texas. Kai, every day, when you do the numbers, you always end <laughs> it by saying, and bond prices are down and yield on the 10-year keynotes are up, or vice versa, bond prices are up and yield on the 10-year keynotes are down. Does that ever change? Is there ever a case where you've had to say, you know, bond prices are up and somehow interest rates are up? Oh, good question. The short answer is no. And here's why. So first of all, we have to caveat this by saying the bond market is 
amazingly complicated. There is about a thousand different ways you can slice and dice the yield question, right? The interest rate question. You can talk about holding bonds to maturity. You can talk about the coupon yield. You can talk about all different kinds of things. But we'll answer this for the generic bond, the U.S. 10-year. Generally speaking, this is a question of supply and demand. When demand for bonds goes down, right? And let's think about when that might be. If people are feeling good about the American economy, things are great and they have excess money, where do they put it? They put it in the stock market because that's the opportunity for their money to grow. They do not buy bonds because bonds, government bonds, are the safe haven. They are the place you go if you think that the economy is going to be shaky, things might go downhill, and you are going to need to hang on to your money and have it be safe. And American debt, until the Congress gets done with it, the Republicans in Congress get done with it, American debt is the safest thing on the planet, right? So when demand for bonds goes down, issuers of new bonds, whether it's companies or the government or what have you, they have to offer higher yields, higher interest rates to make those bonds attractive over the bonds that are already out there, right? And if the value of lower-yielding bonds already on the market goes down, well, then the opposite happens. There you go. I'm so glad you got that one. Yeah. <laughs> 20 years yeah. in this business, and the bond market yeah. still has a way bond, of twisting my brain bond, around. Bond, bonds are immensely complicated, and that was a really simple answer to a truly complicated question. Um, but, you know, as I've, I haven't said it much because we haven't talked about bonds much, but if you want to know which way the economy is going, look at bonds, right? They're the flight to safety. They're the flight to safety. They are the thing that people lean on in times of economic stress, which we are arguably entering upon. Keep an eye on bond yields. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Uh, all right. We're done uh, for today. If you've got a question you'd like us to answer, leave us a voicemail, 508-UB-SMART. You can email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. You can do the voice memo thing as well. We will take it any way we can get it. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Berg-Seeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. And today's program was engineered by Jessen Duller. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the executive director. No, she's not. She's just the regular director of podcasts. Francesca <laughs> Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, Bridget. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.